everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome to day two of our 2015 member drive. I hope you enjoyed yesterday's podcast. This one is going to be even better. We've got our good friend, Johnny Sanfilippo. You probably know him from his pod, his blog, Granola Shotgun. I've had him on the uh, the podcast before. He is one of our favorite guests. He's one of your favorite guests. We get more positive feedback on Johnny than just about anybody else. Johnny is a, an amazing realist and uh, and also a great thinker. And it's it's fun because he's a humble guy too. I mean, he'll say, you know, I I don't have any special <laughs> knowledge or insight, but here's what I do, and I. I find his humble uh, uh, approach to be rather brilliant in its own way. And, of course, he's colorful and fun, and I just love talking and, and hanging out with Johnny. He is a great guy. And like I say in the podcast, sometimes when I get uh, a little uh, you know, uh, off kilter, like, gosh, what are we doing and, and how do we make the best? I, I just go back to Johnny, and Johnny is like this kind of grounding force in, in my life and it, really in the Strong Towns movement as a whole. He is uh, – quite a realist. And I, I just find his approach to be re very, very refreshing. So sit back, enjoy some time listening to Johnny Sanfilippo. And when you're done or, or while you're doing that, head over to the website, www.strongtowns.org. Sign up to become a member. We're pushing to a, a thousand strong. We got a good head start on the first day, but we're going to need a lot of momentum if we're going to get there. And so we need you to take this opportunity to go over and sign up strongtowns.org. Keep doing what you can to make a strong town. Enjoy the podcast, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Thanks for checking back in with the podcast this week. Uh, we've got a very special guest for our member drive this week. One of our original founding members, a guy who's been with us almost since the very beginning. In fact, uh, one of the very earliest guys uh, giving me feedback and comments. He's a regular contributor. You probably know him from his blog, Granola Shotgun. He's been on the podcast before. One of our favorite and most requested guests. He's not going to believe that, but it's true. Johnny Sanfilippo from San Francisco today, right? You out in San Francisco? I just flew back home to San Francisco last night, yes. Well, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy that you agreed to do this. Yeah, and I actually don't believe that I'm uh, highly requested because I think I'm probably one of your most eccentric members, but uh, I, I'm happy that's true. Eccentric sometimes becomes highly requested. It's a You have a very original point of view, and I, I think people love hearing from it. You were recently out in New Jersey. You guy who travels a lot, don't you? In the last month or two, I've been in Louisville, Cincinnati, Atlanta, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, all over Jersey and Pennsylvania, uh, and I just flew back home today. So I'm, I'm in the air more than I'm on the ground, mostly. I love it. I want to go over three different blog posts you wrote about New Jersey. And I'll have to tell you at the outset I've not spent an appreciable amount of time in New Jersey. I spent a summer there in the army and I hated it. <laughs> Fort Dix is not the highlight <laughs> of the garden state. Yeah, I'm guessing not. Um, but uh, I've, I've been back there a couple times and it's, it's been nice. I mean, I, I know there are some nice parts, but I think New Jersey gets a, a bad rap maybe nationally 
as kind of the lesser New York. Is that is that fair? From a- yeah, so I actually spent a big chunk of my uh, my childhood in Tom's River, which is in uh, southern New Jersey, and it's a classic post-World War II suburb. Now, the, the heart of Tom's River was built by the British during colonial days, but that's been just engulfed by, you know, the usual split-level ranch homes on cul-de-sacs and strip malls and stuff. And, you know, if you look at the statistics, you know, places like Tom's River are highly desirable. They're, you know, rated the top 10 of the best places to live, blah, blah, blah. I could not escape that place fast enough. I mean, I was just so bored out of my mind. This is what New Jersey has become. It was a beautiful state physically, you know, in terms of the natural beauty, the forests and the beaches and all. And because of the development pattern, it sort of got waterproofed over the decades. Like little by little, they just turned everything into asphalt and concrete bunkers. And there's still physical beauty left. Uh, there are still really fabulous old pre-World War II towns and neighborhoods that I'd love to explore, and I, I highly recommend them as places to live. But most of New Jersey looks like a strip mall. Now, you wrote these three blog posts, and I found them not only to be, in your typical fashion, very biting and incisive, but also gave me a little bit of, of hope. I wanted to go through the three of them and let you talk a little bit about these three places. Can we start with Collingswood? Is that how you say it? Collingswood? Collingswood. Collingswood is a suburb about 15 minutes outside of Philadelphia. So Philadelphia is on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware River. If you cross the Delaware River, there's a whole collection of suburbs. And there's there's Cherry Hill and there's Marlton and there's uh, Collingswood and, and Voorhees. And they're all, you know, typical post-World War II suburbs. And then embedded in that sprawl, there are the little remnants of what life in New Jersey was like before the highways and, and the big box stores and everything. And Collingswood is one of the best examples of that kind of a town. And it was absolutely charming. It's still a great place to live. In fact, I think it's actually, it had declined a little bit, say in the 70s or whatever, when, when most town centers declined. But it's been rediscovered by a whole new generation of young people who are moving back in and really enjoying uh, life in Collingswood. Uh, it was built around a train station. So in 15 minutes, you can be in center city, Philadelphia. So you had access to the jobs and the culture and the universities and, and everything that, that a city like Philadelphia has to offer, which is a great city. But you also have all the benefits of a suburban life. So you can have a fully detached single family home with a front lawn and a backyard. But that home isn't in an isolated cul-de-sac on the side of a freeway. It's actually two or three or four blocks away from the little main street, you know, where you can, you know, the kids walk to the school because the school is right there and old people can walk to, you know, the hairdressers or the, or the doctor or whatever. And anytime you want to get to the city, you know, you walk a few blocks to the train station in 15 minutes, you're in Philadelphia, or you can connect to the next town over. You know, there was a whole string of these little walkable towns. Manhattan is the next town over. Haddon is another fantastic, you know, pre-World War II railroad suburb. And they're just magnificent places. This is the kind of place that I think satisfies everybody's checklist. You know, it doesn't matter if you really love suburbia and you hate cities, you can live in, in Collinswood. If you really love cities, but um, you may, maybe don't want to live in a high rise, you know, you can, you can get everything that you need in Collinswood. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of these uh, railroad suburbs. You do contrast those two different points of view. And, and really on the spectrum today, it seems like the two ends that can get financed are the the big high rise near the transit line and the suburban home with the three car garage out on the edge. 
there's almost, and you call them, you know, warring factions in a sense of people who adhere to this is the right way to build. Collinswood kind of is a different model from a finance standpoint. Is the problem here that these things are harder to finance? It really doesn't seem like it is. What do you chalk up the Collinswood being overlooked for a while to? What has caused that? So partly people make rational decisions in the short term. So there was a time a few decades ago where your property taxes were going to be a lot lower if you lived in a brand new subdivision out on the edge of the metroplex. And the schools were brand new and the shopping malls were brand new and the homes were brand new and the roads were brand new. And it was all cheaper. You know, you get a lot more bang for your buck. So people would leave Collingswood just the way they left Camden and they left Trenton and they left Philadelphia. But the cities and the town centers emptied out for the stuff out in the cornfields because it was just economically advantageous. I mean, people take the low-hanging fruit. And that was, you know, you'd move to Cherry Hill, you'd move to Marlton, you'd move to, to the cul-de-sacs and the strip malls out on the edge because you, you got more for your money. What's happened now is that the suburban development pattern has started to become expensive to maintain. And even though these are fairly conservative places politically, where people are very frugal with uh, tax dollars and nobody wants to spend extravagantly on anything, and they've outsourced as many municipal services as they could to private contractors, you know, they've done all the usual things to keep costs down and services high, but the taxes keep going up. And municipal governments in sprawl keep struggling to maintain things. And Collingswood, now that the pendulum has started to swing back, is actually starting to become the better place in terms of how much house can you get for your money? What are your property taxes? Oh, you don't need four cars if you live in Collingswood. Maybe your family can get by with one because you really aren't driving constantly. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, the macroeconomics gently presenting different opportunities, and young people in particular, and empty nesters who are selling their big homes down on the fringe, are realizing that the quality of life versus the cost in a main street town like Collingswood is actually just a better value for your dollar than, you know, the split level ranch, you know, 20 miles out. I know you did not delve deeply into their city codes and what have you, but do you? Oh, actually, I did. <laughs> oh, you did? Because I, I was going to ask, you know, what the way you ended the blog post is, you know, you talk about how it's this great place and it has all this stuff going for it, but it's it's too bad that it's illegal to build places like this. Is this something where they've realized locally that embracing the the whole standard set of regulations and codes and and what have you with the the post World War II development pattern is is not helping them and and they've made some shifts or is is this a place where that still is a bureaucratic work in progress in a sense no i i was really impressed with the local government with the mayor and with the people on the staff who have actually come to, to Jesus. They understand the numbers. In, and this is, like I said, this is a fairly conservative place. And these aren't a bunch of hippies. They're looking at the numbers. They said Collingswood has a very definite, constrained physical territory. Uh, you can either have parking lots that generate no revenue at all and do nothing for your town, uh, but it does speed traffic. You know, it does make it convenient for people to pop in. But of course, there's nothing to do when you finally get to a parking lot. Or we can constrain the streets, do road diets here. It doesn't cost very much. There was a parklet, you know, where you took a few parking spaces in front of a coffee shop and you turned it into a little deck with cafe tables and things. And tiny little things that don't cost very much that actually make the town a little bit more interesting, a little bit more vibrant. 
slightly less convenient for cars, but you know, it was definitely making the town more of a destination. They also uh, have started to do a, uh, an overlay with zoning where they said, you know, this is a Main Street town. Uh, let's build more of the kind of Main Street buildings that have been here for 100 years that we know work. Why is it illegal to put an apartment above a shop? We have dozens of them, and they're all great. You know, let's build more of these. Let's let's fill in the the missing teeth. And there was a, a one project in particular called the Lumber Yard, which was you know sort of a grayfield site on on their main street that they they allowed a fairly large development to go in. And by large, I mean you know it's four stories tall, right? So there's the shops on the ground floor, and there's a, apartments and condos upstairs. And suddenly, you know, instead of a parking lot. Uh, you know, at an old lumber yard, you've got more residents. There's rateables, you know, tax revenue coming in from this place. You've got more people physically on Main Street who are now you know, going to the nice restaurants and going to the local hardware store and whatnot. And you know, the town fathers and mothers actually understand the nature of their economic advantage uh, in a way that other places haven't figured out yet. It's another reason Collingswood is a fantastic place to uh, to move to right now. Well, let's contrast that with the second place you wrote about, which I'm going to butcher the name, but is it Pensacken? Is that how you'd say it? Yeah, yeah wow. Pensacken. Okay, Pensacken. Yeah. Pensacken um, is actually right next door. Yeah, you like it? Um, Pensacken, yes and no. You know, Pensacken was was around for about as long as as Collingswood. It didn't have a, a rail station, but it had sort of a streetcar line uh, that would ultimately connect back to Philadelphia uh, and to Camden. Now, you have to remember that. When Pensacken was first built a uh, hundred years or more ago, uh, Camden and Philadelphia were the economic engines of the region. That's where the money and, and all the, the the culture and, and all the opportunities were. And Pensacken was this place where you know there were stately Victorian and shingle style buildings that went up, and you know wealthy people lived in Pensacken because it was just outside of Philadelphia. It was leafy and green, and the air was cleaner, but you could still get right into the heart of Center City. That changed after the war when they began to dismantle uh, the, the streetcar line and they uh, started to improve the, the roadways and make everything car-oriented and they put in the parking lots and they, they took what was you know Crescent Boulevard and they turned it into Highway 130. And it became a, a bigger and bigger and bigger street and they put the concrete barriers down the middle and they put up the fences to keep the pedestrians from getting killed in the traffic. And, and it sort of devolved over the decades into this really grim, waterproofed, bulletproof, car sewer. It's just, it's just really bad. And of course, that devalued the shops on either side. It devalued the, the residential properties on either side. The middle class decided it didn't want to live there, and they moved to the next town over. They moved to Cherry Hill, and they moved to Marlton, and they moved to the newer suburbs farther away. And once the middle class left, uh, the public schools, did, you know, they declined. Because you know, the thing that makes a school district good or bad is how many middle class people have the time and the energy to show up and you know bang heads together and keep the schools good. And once the middle class left, there was nothing but poor people behind, and it all sort of started to go to hell. It was a different development pattern. It seemed like a good idea in 1955 and 1978 and 1982, but the, the cumulative effect was that they turned what could have been a charming Main Street into a crappy highway. You start that piece by talking about a family who could have essentially at the one of the poorest times in the, the country during the depression bootstrap a house. And you kind of contrast that with essentially the lack of opportunity today for people without means 
uh, unless they want to live in, in a place that's far less than desirable. The, these are pretty nice little places that people could have bootstrapped back in the 1930s. How has a city like this changed in terms of the opportunity that it offers the people who actually live there? It really depends on your perspective. You know, I, I actually think that Pensacon has fantastic uh, qualities. I mean, it's it's so close to Philadelphia. It's so easy to get into everything that Philadelphia has to offer. It's also, there's there are beautiful parts of Pensacon. There are still grand homes that are just in perfect condition. They're ready to be inhabited. Decent people live there. But it doesn't have a there there. You know, it doesn't have what Collingswood has, which is this charming Main Street. The, the, the public realm has been so impoverished and degraded that in order to, to put it back together, it would just take too much effort. Now, the people who have been moving there tend to be immigrants. They tend to be people who can't afford what they really want, which is the, the premium uh, suburbs with the great school districts like Cherry Hill and Marlton or Voorhees. And they're at a lower price point, so they can't afford – you know, you can buy a house in Pensacon for forty or $50,000. Yeah. You know, these are these are pretty good houses at a really good price point. And so as long as you can get in your car and drive to the jobs and the opportunities in the greater you know, Philadelphia area, you know, you're good. But the schools are really bad. You know, and that has nothing to do with the, the hardworking people at the school district. You know, they're doing the best they can, but they're underfunded and you know, all, all the usual things. The the best possible scenario for Pensacon is that you just have so many new people move into it to take advantage of the affordable housing in the region that eventually you begin to turn around the cycle. But right now, what happens is people move into Pensacon and they stay there just long enough to bootstrap themselves up into a little bit more money, and then they move to a better suburb next door. Right. And that's sort of what's happening. And, and when everyone is sort of just there long enough to get out, you, people don't invest themselves in the, in the civic institutions. And also, there are all sorts of institutional barriers. You know, you can't really change Crescent Boulevard because it's technically Highway 130, which is not under local control. It's, it's just a massive highway administered by you know, the state or the feds or something. It was pretty sad to see the way the fence had been built along it and, and the, the pedestrian overpasses, the idea that we'll get people to, you know, climb up over top of the, the car sewer. When you look at places that are salvageable, obviously, in theory, this one would be. But in, in a practical sense, is this low hanging fruit? Is this the kind of place that you think will turn itself around or are they are they too far down the auto oriented uh, mindset to be able to to take advantage of all these great assets they've got. So I'm going to compare Crescent Boulevard in Pensacon with Aurora in Seattle. Aurora is the same exact kind of freeway that cuts through. You know, it was once a, a, a smaller road, but it got expanded and expanded and expanded. And uh, it has lovely housing stock on either side, but it's just kind of miserable stroke in Seattle. What happened in Seattle is that the best neighborhoods in Seattle got fantastically expensive. I mean, just hideously expensive. And then people looked for the second best neighborhoods that were still pretty good, and they became ridiculously expensive. And then they were like, okay, we'll go to the not really where I want, but I'll go there. And that got fantastically expensive. And finally, when all of Seattle was just really pricey, people said, I'm going to move to Aurora Avenue, and I'm going to buy that house because it's a really cute little 1930s bungalow, and I love it. And I'm just going to suck up the fact that I'm a half a block away from this miserable Strode. And when you get enough people who are spending like $400,000 on that kind of a thing instead of 40000 then you can actually get a little political traction and you can start tinkering with things. Pansaken is nowhere near that yet. 
Philadelphia still has some fantastic neighborhoods in it that are still very reasonable. You've got some of the little downtown cores like Collingswood and, and other places where middle-class people can settle. That's still pretty good value. You need the rest of the region to get much, much more expensive before people are going to be willing to suck up the problems with the Strodes and Pensacola. Um, so, you know, let's let's hope that Philadelphia continues to improve. It's it's a great city. It's a lot of great neighborhoods. But there's so many other places that you could go that are just better. Third city. I want to talk about Voorhees. Is that how we'd say that? I'm doing I'm doing okay yeah. so far. I I got that yep. one too. Okay. Well, Voorhees has a mall or had a mall in the center of the town. They embraced the notion that the mall would be their salvation. What happened and what has happened subsequent? So Voorhees is actually a very pleasant post-World War II suburb. It's leafy, it's got these little lakes, and you know the autumn leaves are very picturesque right now. And it's got good quality single-family homes on cul-de-sacs. It's got some of the, the nicest train wreck garden apartments I've ever seen. I'm going to have to do a blog post. And, you, know, you ever see the garden apartments from, from the air, and it looks like a train wreck where all oh, the little pods yeah. are? Yeah, yeah. But these are just beautifully landscaped, and they're, they're very nice, they're very tidy. It's a little on the dull side. I don't necessarily want to live in Voorhees, but you know, as post-World War II suburbs go, this is a nice one, right? If that's what you want, Voorhees is a great version of that. But their mall died. And their their shopping mall, it had a Macy's and it had a you know Boscoves and it had the usual anchor stores and the little stores in the middle. And it just it just was in a death spiral. And it was because all of the competing uh, municipalities also had malls. And as retail contracted, there was just there was only so much demand for so many malls. And Cherry Hill and Marlton had the better malls, and people went there, and the Voorhees Mall just went belly up. And of course, now, officially, I don't know this, but it's very clear that you know, Voorhees did all the usual things to subsidize the anchor stores and to bribe, and you know there was extortion, anything to keep the mall alive, because what would we do at our town if our mall died? Right. Uh, finally, they realized it's going to die. Let's just give up on the mall. And they, they tore half the mall down. They, they preserved half of them all, kind of tried to keep that going, bribed people to staying there a little bit longer. And and finally, the Macy's is pulling out or the Boscos is pulling out or whatever. So they decided, let's take our dead mall and turn it into a town. Voorhees doesn't have a town center. It never did. It was a cornfield with tract homes. The mall was essentially the only thing that qualified as anything like a center for Voorhees. And so they, they decided to put the town hall in a portion of the dead mall. And there was also talk of moving the library into the mall and maybe opening up a community college or a medical center, whatever. And then all the uh, empty land and the sort of surface parking around the, the dead mall, they started to put up townhomes and apartments. And, and it's starting to turn into something that if you squint and if you look at it from just the right angle, it's starting to look a little bit like a Main Street downtown. It's very ham-fisted, it's very boxy and bulky, and it's kind of plasticky and flimsy, but it's a lot better than a vacant parking lot. So Voorhees is in the process that I think it'll be a 30 or 40 year process of gradually turning their dead mall into something that looks a little bit more like a town center. I want to just ask you before we're done about the incremental development stuff. You and I have both had a certain level of fascination with John Anderson and the work that he has done and, and the whole thing that they're starting now with the developers boot camp. How important do you think this is as a service, if we want to call it that, or as a concept, the notion of, uh, of, of having not a handful of developers that are financed by wall street, but having literally tens of thousands of developers 
around the country that are, are looking at neighborhoods in cities like these and finding these hidden gems. I mean, how important is this to the, the future of this country? I, I love John Anderson and, and, and Jim Kuman. And I, I was at the uh, developer boot camp in Atlanta recently, and I really enjoyed and learned a lot from the process. Uh, I gave a little presentation there too, which I think people were amused by. <laughs> I, think, I think that the Voorhees model of taking the dead mall and turning it into a town center is the one that most municipal governments gravitate toward because all the existing players are still there around the same table and they're just changing a little bit what they're doing. Again, I don't know this for a fact, but I strongly suspect that the same government subsidies and inducements and sweeteners that propped up the department stores in the mall are just being shifted now into, you know, how can we bribe a developer to come here and build townhomes on the vacant parking lots? You know, what do we need to do to attract this kind of activity? And it's all big game hunting. You know, how, how do we get the medical center to come into the old dead shopping mall? Or how do we get this or that? You know, and, and the developers, you know, they understand how this game is played. Oh, we'd love to build in Voorhees, man. This is a great site. We had so much, but but you know, Town X down the highway, they put a really nice package together. We we you know we can't walk away from that kind of a package. You know, so what John Anderson's uh, small developer boot camp is doing is is providing an alternative to that, right? Where you basically have to. You, know, you have to hike up your skirt, put on a lot of rouge, and hope a big, strong developer comes along and saves your town. John Anderson provides an alternative to that route. The problem is that it's so small in its increments, and it's so long-term, and it's so diffused, that it's really hard to get the economic development or city planner person in a particular town to sign up for that, because it's there's no antlers. There's, there's no tusks. Yeah. You know, there's no... There's no big bearskin rug at the end of this short-term process because you constantly have to show that you've done something huge in your town to justify your position and your salary. And saying that you've got a barbershop to open up, uh, you know, uh, that, that doesn't cut it, right? So everything that John Anderson is doing is fantastic and necessary, and it needs to be ramped up, but expecting the big players to get excited about it is asking a lot. It's asking a lot. I think it's much more of a, a, a under the radar stealth kind of a thing that I'm personally taking part in. I mean, you know, not only was you know I at the boot camp in Atlanta, but I recently bought a property in a neighborhood that I think has potential. It was was a fifteen thousand dollar building. I'm going to add some money to it. I'm going to improve it. I'm doing exactly what he's recommending. It's sort of what I've always done all along, but now there's a name for it. I don't go to the council and ask for special things. I don't expect uh, cooperation. I mostly try just to stay out of trouble. I feel like across this landscape, there are so many really good investments that can be made in undervalued places. But the trick is finding and identifying the ones that are not necessarily the Voorhees. I mean, I, I, I do think that you've got the plastic developers there with the Wall Street financing and, and the same old model. But maybe they're on the the Collinswood end of things, or or maybe they're on the Pensacan. I mean, maybe maybe that's where the best investments are going to be for uh, the more strategic real estate developer or real estate investor. Put it in your words. What do you think the market potential is for someone who wants to do a little more than dabble in real estate and is willing to look 
nationally beyond, uh, you know, maybe the traditional places? Um, wh where should you buy? Is that the question? Not at all. I don't want that. From an investment standpoint, if you go to like an investment place and say, you know, what should I invest in? You'll get, they'll give you five stocks and they'll say, well, you should buy Apple and Google because they're, uh, you know, blue chip and what, you know, they're these winners. And, and then you should buy, you know, waste products or whatever, some, you know, old boring thing, but you'll get like the, the standard five and they, they won't give you, you know, the little penny stock uh, because that's, that's outside of a traditional portfolio, right? If you're right. investing in real estate, it seems to me like you could go to Austin and build a condo. You could go to Phoenix and build tract housing out in the desert, and hopefully the subsidies won't run out before you sell it. There's a realm there, and th these are the places like the Cincinnati's and the Dayton's, and, and, and maybe they're the Collinswoods and the Pensacans of the world, where there's a, there's a certain emerging uh, prosperity that the market hasn't caught up to it yet. Am I imagining things or is there really an investment niche there for people who are interested in, in good real estate development? I've spent my life, and now, now that I'm comfortably middle-aged, uh, accidentally doing this, not because I thought I was going to make money or, or that it was any kind of a business model, but I've always just been attracted to seedy places with interesting people, whether that was uh, San Francisco a long time ago when, you know, the mission was considered a crappy place to live, uh, or whether it was, you know, various uh, economic cycles when there is a recession and uh, nobody has cash on hand and the banks aren't lending, you know, I, I was able to, to buy properties in, in places when nobody else could at a very deep discount. Buying at the top of a market in a, in a really fashionable place that's booming is a bad idea because you're going to pay top dollar. You know, you're going to spend a lot of money. You're not going to get very much for your money. And, you, you know, you're already at the top. Where, where do you go from the top? You can either stay where you are or you can decline. The, the better move, if you're in it for the long haul, if you're in it for a fair amount of time, is to find the places that uh, nobody really values at the moment, but they have good phones. And you have to guess and you have to be lucky. Uh, but if you're paying attention, if you, if you go to enough places across the country uh, and you start to notice patterns and trends and the way the pendulum is swinging, you, you can kind of get a feel for a place just by being there, which is why I, you know, I like Collingswood and I, I worry about the, the Pensacans that, you know, that, that could be great, but maybe I won't live long enough to see it. I don't know. Let me ask you this, because I, I think this is an important, subtle nuance, because when we, when we hang out with new urbanists, they go to a neighborhood and they're like, wow, this place has great bones. And, you know, there's a, there's a part of it's like, yeah, that it does. But, you know, there are blocks and blocks and blocks of Philadelphia that have great bones that I don't see coming back anytime soon, because they, the underlying, if we want to call it social fabric or economic fabric, wh whatever it is, just isn't there. Is there something yeah. deeper there that that people need to see? Well, I'll talk specifically about Philadelphia because I've been paying attention to Philadelphia for 30 years and it's a great city. And I actually, I was going to move to Philadelphia and by happenstance, I wound up in San Francisco instead, but I would have been just as happy and just as prosperous if I had stayed in Philadelphia. There was a South Street, a Queen Village neighborhood that, you know, 20, 30 years ago was you know, kind of rough. 
and it's completely gentrified now. It, you know, even the, the the inner city school, you know, uh, is now considered the the top ten percent in the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, so many middle class professionals moved into Queen Village that the schools there are now highly sought after, and they actually had to put like a, a little fence around the neighborhood so that you had to live in the neighborhood to go to that school. You know, that had never been the case before. So as Queen Village got expensive, people said, "Well, how about the Northern Elizabeth, which is just you know a little bit farther out?" Oh yeah, that got gentrified. It was a crappy neighborhood for a long time. It's now very expensive. As uh, Queen Village and as the Northern Liberties got expensive, then it was Fishtown, the next neighborhood out, which was pretty rough, you know, which is now very expensive because the developers and the and the, the millennials and the, the empty nesters have moved into Fishtown and it's really rapidly transformed and it's uh, it's quite a nice place to live and it's it's pricey. Well, Kensington is the new neighborhood that people are moving to. I cannot tell you how horrible Kensington was for decades. Nobody, nobody could ever imagine Kensington being a nice place to live ever under any circumstances. Well, Kensington has seen a lot of development and a lot of money moving into it. Now, Upper Darby, that's a different thing, you know, because it's a little bit too far out and it's, you know, it doesn't have the right quality. So, Parts of Philadelphia that are really rough are getting better rapidly. And then there are other places that maybe will improve eventually, but maybe not. I don't remember your question. <laughs> well, I was, I, I, was, I was wondering about the, the social essence of a place. If I went around the country, Chuck Marone from central Minnesota, and I take a bunch of photos of places and I send them to you, Johnny, and I say, look... This is a great neighborhood with great bones. Check it out. Look at look at this photo. And I'm going to say, Johnny, I, I think you should buy a place in this neighborhood. You're going to say, what? Like, like there's there's more to it than that, Chuck. There's, uh, you know, what's the soul of this place? What what kind of food can you get here? What's the what's the scene? Right? There, there's more to a successful place than just the layout and the design, right? So. My my skill, and I put that in, in quotation marks, yeah. is I'm not very smart, and I know that I'm not very smart. But what I do is I pay attention to other people who are much smarter than I am, and I just observe what they're up to. And it tends to be younger people, you know, people who would love to live in Brooklyn. They would love to live in San Francisco or Vancouver or Toronto. They can't afford it. And they know that they will never be able to afford it, that the numbers, I mean, it's like flying to the moon. It's not going to happen, right? So they're looking for those places that give them most of what they want at a price that makes sense to a 28-year-old with massive student loan debt right? and, a, and a crappy job. And I follow them. So that that's my litmus test is have people begun to, oh, by the way, empty nesters are also doing the same thing. You know, how you've lived in Brooklyn for years and, you know, you're doing fine, but you know, now you've reached an age where you're not going out to the dance halls anymore and you don't need quite as much excitement. And maybe you're looking for, they're moving as well. Where are they moving to? Right. And it's, it's the second and third tier cities. It's the Buffaloes and the Pittsburghs and the Louisvilles and the Cincinnatis. And or, or, or maybe it's one of the Main Street towns near their metroplex, the, the Collingswoods, right? So it's not like I need to look at the, the bones all by themselves. I need to know who's moving there and why. So then that's why I go to these places. I, I constantly check out different places around the country and I look for indicator species. You know, are there the bright young uh, people who are moving there? Not individually, but collectively. Or is, there, is there a movement of people moving in? And if you talk to the young people who have just 
bought property in a place for forty or fifty thousand dollars, and you'd say, "Oh, yeah, I spent three years in Brooklyn. I spent four years in San Francisco. I, I was, I was in, I was in Toronto, and I loved Toronto, but you know, who could afford it? And now I'm here." And you say, "Oh, great. Well, that, that's how I figured out. It's not like I, I'm smart. It's not like there's any spreadsheet I use. I just poke around the neighborhoods and I talk to the people and I see what's going on and I listen to what they have to say about why they've moved to their place. And then they introduce me to their friends and their neighbors and they tell me their stories. That's how I pick a place. It seems like the last couple of times that you and I have bumped into each other, I have been the one with the ridiculously busy schedule. Uh, when are you and I going to hang out? Uh, anytime we're in the same city at the same time and we have 10 minutes to chat. You're always welcome here in San Francisco. I know you, you've invited me and I, I, I have it on my list of places. I, I thought we were going to make it in 2015, but it, it may wind up to be next year. But I, I, I will promise you that we're coming to the Northwest and uh, San Francisco and the San Francisco area will be included in that because I, I love hanging out with you and I, I love chatting with you. I always learn something. I always enjoy uh, what you have to say. I'm really excited about the way you present things to a mainstream audience. I'm too extreme for most people to handle. I don't have a message that's palatable. I actually don't care if anybody listens to me because I think failure fixes itself. Let them fail. That's fine with me. But you actually can appeal to people in a way that seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, you're a grown up. You know, you present things. Uh, you know, in a in a in a way that people can absorb. Even if they don't necessarily take immediate action, they at least understand what you're saying. Well, you are always a good check on my reality. And I've, I've found over the last few years, a couple of times when I was struggling with something where just literally five minutes with you kind of cleared my brain and got me uh, thinking in the right direction again. So I appreciate that. You know, this is our member drive week. And I, I, I want to say thank you to you again for being a member and, and being an outspoken one. I mean, one who's helped us out a lot and who has, uh, you know, shared our message with other people. So thank you so much. Yep. And I'm, I'm re-upping my membership. I'm sending in my check. So uh, you'll get my money soon. And I encourage others to do the same. You are a an awesome guy. Thanks, Johnny. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make it today! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. All right. Stella. What? What do you think of Strong Towns? It's boring. <laughs> what do you mean it's boring? 
Why is it? What is boring about strong towns? You don't do anything. What do you mean you don't do anything? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks boring. What, what, what do you mean looks boring? The website looks boring? No, what you do looks boring. You take pictures of streets. <laughs> That's what Dad does? Yeah. And that looks boring? Does Dad, like when we're driving, just stop and say, I have to take a picture of the street? Sometimes. <laughs> is, that, is that boring to you? Yes. What are we going to do after uh, Thanksgiving? We have big plans the day after Thanksgiving. What are we going to do? <laughs> Take pictures of streets. <laughs> Is that what we do for fun in our family? Yes. Yeah. Are you a member of Strong Towns? No. <laughs> no? Why not? You want to be? No. <laughs> it, what's your favorite book? Is it Thoughts on Building Strong Towns or is it World Class Transportation System? Neither. <laughs> what? <laughs> do you like Harry Potter better? Yes. All right. Well, I can't blame you there. Um, do you want to tell people thank you? Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Stella Faith. Can I go read now? Go read.